Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you that you've not left us in the dark to try and work out and guess who you are. But as we've just sung, you've spoken through the ages, through the prophets, you've spoken through the scriptures, you've spoken supremely through your Son. Thank you. What a joy it is to say that we know you. What a greater joy to be able to know that you know us and love us. So now as we come to your word, please speak to our hearts afresh. Bring conviction where it's needed, encouragement, challenge, refreshment. We ask all of this, that Christ may be glorified. Amen. Please open your Bibles to Psalm chapter 1. Page 543. At the start of my ministry as the senior pastor of this congregation, I thought of lots of different passages, but starting with Psalm 1 is not really a bad place to start, is it? Here is the Bible's hymn book. Let's read Psalm 1. Let me read it to you. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Not so the wicked. They're like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is God's word. Here is the... Bible's hymn book for God's people. We don't have the music, but we have the words. And like all other scriptures, although uh, written by men like uh, King David and Moses and uh, the sons of Korah, amongst others named there, God has superintended by his spirit in a way that these words that we have here are actually God's words to us. And here is sort of a unique book. Here God has given us words that reveal to us truly himself, but also they are words that we can use to worship him and speak back to him and, and understand our relationship to him. They, they are very precious psalms, aren't they? I think many people find great comfort in reading through the psalms and seeing the range of emotions. Here we have the full gamut of experience, don't we? From elation and joy to the heartache and traumas of life, we have everything going on here. And a psalm that helps us to know how we may speak to God and seek His grace and seek His goodness. So here is an amazing book that teaches us how to worship God. How surprising then, when you get to the very first psalm, when you notice, who is it about? The opening psalm does not begin with God, it actually starts talking about man. 
Now that's a big surprise, isn't it? Blessed is the man. It's a generic word, man there. Blessed is the person. Blessed is the man. Blessed is the woman. And it seems to me that the first two Psalms serve as a great introduction to the whole worship book. Uh, These two Psalms, Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, we'll be considering Psalm 2 in a few weeks when I get back from the YPM. That is, if I survive the Cayley, we'll look at Psalm 2. As we look at these two Psalms, we'll see that they give us great motivation to pursue this amazing privilege of worshipping God. It's as if the psalmist wants to start with two psalms to say, no, this is why you should engage in this. And that motivation is, is provided by encouragement and by warning. There is uh, an encouragement here to consider the blessed and happy life of the God-centered person, the godly person. And then there is also on the other side, there is a warning to remind us as God's people of the cursed an unhappy life of the godless person. And so it's vitally important, isn't it, that each one of us is clear which type of person we are. For there's a radical difference between these two positions, the the God-centered, the godly person, and the godless person. I mean, what an incredible privilege to live under the blessing of God. What an amazing statement to say, I live under the blessing of the God who created the universe. I live under his blessing day by day. What a life to live under such a state. And then equally, how horrific, how unbelievably terrifying to go through life under God's curse as an object of his anger and his wrath. And the psalmist describes here, doesn't he, two groups of people in the world. There is the wicked... And there is the righteous, there's the ungodly, there is the godly. There are are people who push God away. Uh, In their life story, God, if he's in, 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 in in their biography, he's just a minor footnote. And there are those who, uh, instead of pushing him away, bow the knee. Worship him, acknowledge him, live for him. These are people for whom, if you read the the biography of their lives, God is, is front and center. He he is the center upon which the spokes of all their life can be described. These are the two people described here. And and there is a pronouncement in Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 uh, over the godly life. The the psalmist would uh, summarize this life as the happy life. For that's another way of understanding blessed. The happy life or the blessed life. And the summary over the ungodly life is the doomed life. The perishing life. There are only two types, according to this psalm, and in a room of this size, with this many amount of people, I would guess that there will be both types of people here today. You will fall into one of these two groups this evening, and you need to be clear which one you are. Which one are you? There's no third option. And so this first two psalms, they're an introduction to the rest of the book, And uh, what makes the difference between the happy life and the doomed life? That's what we need to know, isn't it? What makes the difference between the happy life, the blessed life, the life under God's care and and concern, and the life of one who is under God's wrath and judgment? What makes the difference? Well, someone will tell us it is our attitude to God's word. 
It's our attitude to God's word, and that's what we're going to consider tonight. And in two weeks, we're going to consider Psalm 2. And the answer in Psalm 2 is a slightly different answer. It is our attitude to God's king. It makes all the difference in the world, whether we're living the happy or blessed life, whether we're living the doomed and perishing life. Your attitude to God's word and your attitude to God's king. And so what we have before us in Psalm 1 are three contrasts. Dick mentioned uh, over this weekend uh, the hard work of preaching and that feeling as you wrestle uh, on Sunday morning, having worked all week and you still haven't got the wrinkles out of your sermon. Well, that's how I feel. I have a message for you, but I'm not happy with what I've got on my page. I have wrinkles. So, let's see what's going to happen by God's grace. But there's three contrasts here, aren't there, in uh, Psalm 1. Three stanzas, verses 1 and 2, contrasting influences. Verses 3 to 4, contrasting fruit. And in verses 5 to 6, contrasting outcomes. And that's what we're going to consider in our time here. Firstly then, contrasting influences. Blessed is the man. Verse 1 could be translated, Oh, the happinesses. It's plural. Oh, the happinesses of the person who... Well, I wonder, I wonder how would you complete that sentence today? You know... The happy life is dot, dot, dot. What would, you, what would you put in there? Maybe it's getting a job. I would be, my life would be happy if I got a job or got a raise or got a girlfriend, got a boyfriend or maybe got a day off. Happiness is. What would it be for you? Uh, those in their 40s and over will remember uh, an amazing uh, ad campaign where we'd see um, some man in some terrible straits, very frustrated, some catastrophe was happening. He'd come to an end of himself. There was nothing he could do. He looked miserable, and he pulled out a box of cigars, and he put one in his mouth. And as he lit the cigar, I think it was Bach's air on a G-string would just start playing in the background, and the voiceover would say, happiness is a cigar called Hamlet. Amazing, isn't it? Put some burning leaves in your lips. <laughs> Happiness. Some say that. I noticed that the BMW are not offering to sell you merely a car now. They're offering to sell you joy. Joy. And if that's a bit too expensive for you, you can go to McDonald's and you can buy a Happy Meal. And the happiness lasts in my household for about five minutes before they fight about the plastic toy. Well, isn't that the happiness that the world offers? What would you put in that gap? Well, the psalmist surprises us, I think. He first tells us that the happy person, the blessed person, is marked by the things they do not do. Isn't that striking? Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers. We are all influenced by the people around us, aren't we? We'd like to think that we're so ruggedly individual that we're our own people. We form our own opinions. We, uh, we know who we are. We know we're about. But of course, that's just not true. We're all powerfully shaped by the opinions and the attitudes and the worldview of the people around us. Children pick up the attitudes and opinions of their parents. You learn this as a shocking thing as a parent, don't you? When your child comes out and says something and you go, 
That's terrible. Oh no, I say that. We're all shockingly malleable by the cultural values around us. Sociologists have, sociologists have done a lot of research where they've shown as individuals they can put them in circumstances where uh, actors are around them and they ask them an answer and they answer it correctly, but the actors say, no, it's, it's the other one. And as they keep going through the experiment, the person who is uh, answering truthfully begins to doubt himself and answers along with them. We're so influenced by the people around us. And so the only question is, who do we allow to influence us? Who are we going to allow into our lives to shape our attitudes and our thinking and our values and our beliefs? Who are we going to let in to do that? Um, the friends we pick are very important, aren't they? Students, as you're starting first years particularly, be very careful who you pick as your friends. Don't rush into this. You're so keen to see a happy face. You'll, you'll grab anybody and then you spend the rest of the year trying to avoid them, don't you? But uh, children at school, be careful who your friends are. They will shape how you think. The blessed life, the happy life, the life that knows God's blessing is one that chooses not to be shaped and influenced by those who reject God and his word. Now, I'm not talking about monasticism. The Lord Jesus got a reputation as being a glutton and a drunkard. Well, that was the slur that was made upon him because he hung around with people like that. Was he like that himself? No, he didn't avoid people like that. He lived his life before them in a way to draw them back to the Father. He befriended them, showing the love of the Father in his activities and as he headed to the cross. We're not talking about monasticism here. We're not saying that uh, you know, we live in a hermetically sealed box I mean, by and large, we live in a culture that is totally rejecting of God, don't we? What, 5% attend some sort of church in Edinburgh? Uh, we can't ignore, we can't live lives separated from that. But we do need to be very careful, don't we? We need to choose not to be shaped and influenced by a God-rejecting world. And it is a definite choice. Uh, if we don't think about it, we will absorb the values and cultures and the views of our society. It'll just impress itself upon us. We need to make a definite choice, just as this man, he chooses not to walk in the, in the counsel of the wicked. The blessed life involves choosing not to embrace the lifestyle, the views, the values of the wicked. And we need to actively listen as we read newspapers and magazines and read blogs and, and, and as we watch movies and listen to music and watch the TV. We need to discern when we're hearing a godless, God-rejecting agenda and remind ourselves this is not so. Now some see a downward progression in these verses. A person begins walking in the counsel of the wicked. And after a time of that, the pattern of his life and thinking is shaped so that he begins to stand with the sinners. And then the final stage, he becomes one who so rejoices in sin that he takes a seat and joins his voice with those who mock the things of God, who mock the values of the Bible, who mock the people of God. I think there's something to that, don't you? And the happy and blessed person knows the pattern. And so it makes a very definite choice at the beginning not to follow the pattern and course of life that he sees around him. The blessed person chooses not to let his life be influenced by those things. 
It sounds terribly old-fashioned to say this, but I want to say it um, to all of us, and especially young people. Bad company corrupts. It does. What you allow into your mind and your heart through the internet, through your music, through the films you will watch, through bad company corrupts. If you saturate yourself in a multimedia culture without discernment, it will poison your Christian life. It will take away your joy in the things of God. It will poison your happiness of your salvation in the Lord. It will do that. And the life that knows the blessing of God has made some very clear choices that there are places that they will not go. There are magazines they will not read. There are movies they will not watch. There are TV shows that they will switch off. And there are conversations that they refuse to join in. That's what the blessed person chooses. But of course, the the blessed person is not just marked by the things they don't do. They're also marked by what they choose positively to have an influence over their lives. There it is in verse 2. Really, this is the central text, I think, of this psalm. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. Do you want the blessing of God upon your life? Do you desire to know God's richest blessing upon you in every aspect and sphere of your life? Yes, I would hope. Well, here it is, verse 2. Blessed is the man who doesn't do this, walk in the counsel of the wicked, but who does this. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Now, it sounds a bit odd to us when we first hear it. Um, You know, when you do your uh, learning to drive, you get the um, highway code, the rules of the road, and those, these, these rules are not things that excite us, are they? The law of the, law of the land does not excite us. There are a few amazing people who become lawyers and they seem to get excited by laws, but most of us really can't get that up for it. So it sounds odd to us, but of course when it says here the law of the Lord, that word in the Old Testament could also just mean instruction. It's not just rules and regulations, this is God's instruction. Uh, this, in a sense, what we have in the Bible is, is God's manual about life. God's manual that we may know him and know how to live life. Uh, and it's more than that, of course, isn't it? It is the self-disclosure of himself so that we can come into relationship with the creator of the universe. This is a book that invites us not to merely know someone at a distance, but to know someone personally. Invites us into relationship. This is a God who has acted Not remotely, he is a personal God who revealed himself to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, who entered into covenant relationship with his people, who heard the cries of his people in Egypt as they were suffering under cruelty of of Pharaoh and his men, and delivered them out of Egypt, brought them into the promised land. This is the God who gave them his, his law, his instruction as forgiven, grace given people. He gives them his word, and then he takes them into a land, and he gives them the the sanctuary and the temple and the sacrifices so that their sin can be dealt with and they can be in relationship with him. And all of this pointing forward, of course, to the Lord Jesus Christ. How incredible that the God who made this, this, this world in, in all its blessing and in its abundance, even in its fallen state, we see its blessing and abundance, don't we? That this God should not write us off, but choose to act at great cost to himself so that we could be forgiven reconciled, accepted, brought near to him, become one of his children, part of his people, through the death of his own son. 
so that instead of cursing, which is what we deserve, we receive blessing. This is amazing. This is incredible. Instead of facing the judgment of God, we are offered, in fact, paradise of relationship with himself. And when you enter into this covenant relationship, when you become a Christian, when you put your trust in Jesus, then I tell you, one of the sure signs of this reality happening is your attitude to this book changes. Does it not? Before, well, this is a very boring, dull book. Uh, I don't know, maybe your granny gave you one and you put it on the shelf and it's, it's got dust on it and uh, the Bible is boring. Why would you read it? And then you come to Christ. Then you become a Christian. And while before you may have mocked and derided it, now it's precious. Now this reveals your loving Heavenly Father, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This reveals Jesus to you. This, this is a picture of His love for you. This This lets you into the relationship deeper and deeper. And suddenly someone who had no interest in the Bible is starting to read it. It's coming along with interest to listen to the preaching of it. He's going to Bible studies. He's reading books about it. He's asking, how can I apply this? How can I I put this into practice in my life? It is one of the most extraordinary changes that is a sure sign of new life in a person, isn't it? When someone's attitude to God's word changes. Well, that's what the psalmist says. The man who is under God's blessing, the woman who is under God's blessing, is marked by this very thing. A new attitude to God's word. Do you see here, it requires an active choice. On his law, he meditates day and light. Here's a book, and uh, it does not mystically become mine. Merely holding it does nothing. I had a friend who used to put it under his pillow to stop him having nightmares. It was superstitious nonsense, wasn't it? It doesn't do anything. You have to open it. You have to choose to read it. And if you want this truth to start impacting you, you chew it over. You meditate on it. You may memorize a few verses and and, and you're praying and asking God help to, to think about how do you apply this? What does it say to my marriage? What does it say in my singleness? What does it say to my work? What does it say to my relationship? What does it say in the current challenges I'm facing in my life as you chew it over? Well, this is the the life of the godly person, the blessed person. Day and night, it says. He meditates on it. Does that mean that we have to be reading the Bible nonstop, 24-7? Is that what it's saying? Are you doing that? Oh, dear. Well, it's very interesting that Joshua was told uh, as he was picked to be the replacement for Moses that he should meditate on it day and night. And also he was given a pretty straight command to go out there with a sword and get busy, wasn't he? And I doubt he was doing a Bible study as he was fighting. What does it mean then to meditate on it day and night? I think it means this. It means that every situation, every trial, every challenge, every opportunity of your life is assessed and considered in the light of this word. As you read it day by day, and as you go through the day, you are thinking, uh, whatever comes your way, you're thinking, now, what does the Bible have to say to me about this? How does what I know about Scripture inform this decision I have to make, this choice I have to make, this, this, um, this thing I need to work out with somebody? That's what it means to meditate on the, on the word day and night. It's so to have it in you that really it is your reference point for everything. 
That's what it means to meditate upon it day and night. And of course, the very least is that you do actually read it. And uh, my friends, if you've uh, lost the habit, start tomorrow. Reading plans are a great blessing and a terrible curse, especially for the legalists, because you think, well, actually, I haven't done it for three months, and I have to read every single passage. It's never going to happen. No, just read today, today's passage. Just do five minutes if you've done none. Do ten if you've done five. Do 20 if you've done 10. Just get back on the horse. When you think about this psalm as an introduction to a worship book, isn't it fascinating what he says about proper worship? We get so worked up about worship today. Uh, It's a big industry selling worship albums, and worship to these days is about having an amazing band that can really kick it out amazing worship leader who can string a few chords together, Uh, a great emotional meeting that's going to whip us all up and give us the buzz. I got the buzz at the U2 concert, by the way, so you don't have to get it just from worship music. It's not about the buzz, is it? The psalm teaches us that engaging with God properly starts with engaging our mind on God's revealed word. If we want to approach God rightly, we must approach him on his terms. We must approach the God who is there as he is. And so we will be people who will meditate upon his law. We as evangelicals are suckers for a good tune. We can sing the most wishy-washy, nonsensical lyrics if it's got a great tune. I've sat in a number of churches and we have sung songs and I haven't got a clue what the words meant. But the tune was great, and I really felt good. Well, that's nonsense, isn't it? I don't believe we should uh, be psalm-only singers, as much as I respect the Free Church of Scotland brothers. But we must ensure that our modern songs all flow out of biblical truth, that they accurately reflect a true knowledge of God. Proper worship of God starts with engaging the mind on Scripture. But of course, it's not just our minds, is it? Look back at verse 2. It's our hearts. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. His affections are stirred. Do you see that? I want you to think about this, my Christian friend of many years. Are you delighted by the word of God? Are you delighted to open it? What does delight look like? Some of your faces don't look like it right now. This is not how you look when you're delighted, is it? You know, you've maybe gone to a favorite piece of music, or you've you've gone to a great concert, or you've uh, get to that football match, uh, that rugby match. Well, you see lots of delight, don't you? What do people like when they are delighted? Well, they tell everybody about it, don't they? Did you watch the match last night? Did you see that? You watch the Six Nations? Phil Doggett wanted to talk to me about last season. I wasn't having any of it. There's a new season coming. Have you ever been on a, um, a train ride with a train spotter? My father-in-law, I love him. He's a train spotter. He can't help himself. He knows the length of every bridge, and he tells me all about it. It's fascinating. 
Husbands, you've had this experience, haven't you? You've come home and the kitchen is full of plastic bags and you have a wide-eyed woman looking at you breathlessly saying, I have saved so much money. (laughs) The delight. You can't help but sharing it. Do we have that delight in God's word? The blessed life, the godly life is one that puts the mind to work, but whose affections are engaged. Now, the point is, if it was just a book, it would be hard to do that, wouldn't it? How are the affections engaged as we, as we come to God's Word? It is simply this, because we are, we are looking through this book to a relationship with God. It is through this book that we truly relate to God the Father, God the Son, If you've trusted, you can say, the Son of God who loved me. He gave himself for me. Well, this is who we meet through the Word. We don't worship the Bible. We worship the God that we meet in this book. And so it's precious. It delights us. Now, my experience as a Christian is that this is tough work. Now, there's a, there's, a, there's a conundrum, isn't it? It's the source of delight and joy and true knowledge, and yet, it's, let's be real, it's, it's hard work, isn't it, sometimes? Especially if you're doing McShane readings and you're somewhere in the book of Numbers, or I, w- I was going to say Leviticus, but I know Brian thinks it's a very exciting book, and he'll tell you why later if you ask him for a long time. Because <laughs> he really is excited, he's delighted in it. It is tough. And I'm not here to put guilt trips on anybody here tonight. It's almost the easy application, is it? Read the Bible more. Duh. What did you learn in church tonight? Read the Bible more. Okay. The purpose of this psalm is not to get us depressed, but it is to encourage us to see the amazing results of living like this. See, do you see that? Uh, We've seen the contrasting influence. Now look at verse 3 to 4, the contrasting fruit. Goodness me, the time is going, isn't it? This is what a God-centered life that delights in the Bible looks like. Verse 3, he is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. And here's the contrast. Not so the wicked. They're like chaff that the wind blows away. What a contrast. The God-centered life, the word-focused life, is, is a picture of a beautiful tree. We lived in Spokane, and there um, it was technically a desert area, and I had to have the experience of putting in irrigation systems. This is one of the wonderful things about Edinburgh, isn't it? God, God has provided richly an irrigation system. You don't have to go to a shop. The Lord has done it for us. We should thank him, shouldn't we? It's a lot of hard work putting an irrigation system in. But uh, we planted some trees and um, some apple trees, and one apple tree was just terrific, going great guns. Looked alive, fruit was growing on it. Another apple tree, really struggling. I couldn't work this out, and I was kind of distracted for a few weeks, and the thing got pretty bad, and I finally went to work out what was going on. Of course, uh, what we used to call them in, in Spokane was critters. Some critter had chewed through my irrigation pipe. And so while one tree was being well watered, one was not. And of course, it was looking rather shriveled and awful. Well, that's the picture, isn't it? It's an obvious picture. 
and the life that is chosen, rather than being influenced by the world and, and friendship with the world, is being influenced by, its, by, by, by friendship with God as, uh, by coming and meditating on His Word. There's the contrast. The, word that is, the life that is centered on God is, is, is one like a, a fruitful tree. Alive, fresh, vital, bearing fruit, permanent. It doesn't matter what is happening around. It can be parched all around. This tree will continue to be fruitful and prosper. The ungodly are not so. Impermanent. Uh, in the old days, you used to throw the grain up in the air, and the grain was heavier than the, the dust and, the, and the, the bits around it that were no good, the chaff. You'd throw it in the air, and the chaff would just simply be blown away. It was the dross. It was nothing. It was empty. It was useless. It was, and, the, and, and, the, and, and the real grain, the stuff, the harvest would drop to the deck, and you'd gather it up. Well, that's what the wicked are like. It's dross. No fruit. Just blown away. While the godly, whatever he does, prospers. Now, I believe this verse, but it requires some explanation, does it not? This is not a verse saying that you get that lovely BMW, although you might if you work hard, but it's not a, a promise you read God's word and you're going to get that huge house and that uh, you'll never have a disease. It's not that sort of prosperity that's being talked about. Although we have to say so much of the heartache that we're seeing in our society is because people have rejected God's word. Families are disintegrating. Uh, values that held this culture together, which were biblical values, are being lost, and we're seeing the pain and the suffering of it, are we not? Uh, a marriage that is centered on God's word will prosper. A family that is centered on God's word will prosper. A church centered on God's word will prosper, but it's not the prosperity of uh, financial and material success. It is the, the true prosperity and fruit of, of godliness. God's word will bring the fruit of patience in the time of suffering. It will bring a faith in the time of trial. It will bring a God-centered joy in both um, prosperity and an affliction. Uh, when I studied at Moore College, I did some dentistry to pay the bills. I was trained to be a dentist, so don't worry, it was legitimate. And, uh, <laughs> and I, I, uh, I filled in for a dentist who was going on holiday in South Australia in a place delightfully called Berry Berry. So good they named it twice. And uh, he was married, this dentist, with two teenage daughters. It was a great dental practice. He had a beautiful house, lovely swimming pool, large jacuzzi. The house was on a huge plot of land. He grew delicious oranges in his own uh, vineyard. He had his own wine vats. Uh, it looked idyllic, the perfect situation. And yet, the truth was, while he was away on holiday, he left his wife behind and his family. I lived in the other wing of the house, and as the... The days went on, it was clear his home life was a disaster. The marriage was all but over. They lived in opposite ends of the house. The children were obnoxious. The wife was uh, so unhappy. And after two weeks, she asked me, now how is it you've had such a perfect life? I said, what are you talking about? I said, I don't, I don't live in a house like this. And she said, well, you've had such a happy childhood. You've got a happy marriage. You get on with people, you're different to the other dentists we've had. Now, the only thing I could think to, of saying to her at that time was that the difference was only really down to Jesus. 
I had grown up in a family that had tried to live out the principles of the Bible. We, we tried to please Jesus in our marriage by trying to live out the Bible. And, and to be honest, my life is not special at all. I know lots of people whose lives are similarly to many on the outside look incredibly blessed because of living under the word of God. The psalm is saying that shouldn't be a surprise. You plant a tree by water, it's going to grow, it's going to prosper. And living in a sinful world, the reality, of course, means that nobody's life is free from difficulty and hardship. This is not a prosperity message. Christians will find themselves in difficult marriages, will struggle with bad health, will find themselves in businesses that go bankrupt, will struggle with unwanted feelings and face the horrendous consequences of other people's sins upon them. And I know of only one thing that can sustain people in the circumstances of their life, and it is God's Word. A year after that in Australia, I was taken to meet an older gentleman in his mid-80s, and I heard a bit about his life. He'd experienced a very difficult and painful childhood. He was old. He was physically weak. He lived in a tiny house. It was obvious he didn't have much money, and he'd spent most of his adult life working for the Bible Society of Australia. He was given an old army four-wheel drive, a big box of Bibles, and sent off to some of the remotest spots of Australia to share the gospel with people. We only spent 20 minutes in that house, but it was a time I will not forget. His eyes, his face were just alive. They were just full of joy. It seemed impossible to him uh, to be able to speak any few sentences without quoting some scripture, because that's what he did in the outback. There, he had nothing to do. Open the Bible and he read it. He had lived out verse 2, and so he was a living example of verse 3. And I'm sure as I get to know you, there'll be many people like that in this congregation. And even if our lives are being lived out in the desert of affliction, of, of pain, of disappointment, and of trial, the life that has chosen to root itself in God's word will not lack for the streams of God's grace for the rivers of God's promise or the, the, the river of communion with Christ in the, as a never-ending supply. It's not even one stream. By streams of water, you will not lack. That's the life that is rooted in God's word. Wasn't it great to have Dick Lucas with us? 84 years old. Was it another example of a man who has lived out verse 2 and has a fresh vitality about him because of God's word. So there is the contrasting influences, there's a contrasting fruit, but the real clear point in verses 5 and 6 is a contrasting future. Look at verse 5 with me. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is very serious, isn't it? Two ways. It's very clear. My children attend um, Craig Mount High School, and someone has decided to put a statement over the doorway they walk through every day. Here's the statement. Life is a journey, not a destination. Now, what's that? That's secular humanism, isn't it? Life's a journey, not a destination. Here's Bible truth. Life is a journey with one of two eternal destinations. That's what the Bible has to say. 
It's very clear here, isn't it? And this verse tells us something that we desperately need to hear. It's something that we would never think or imagine because, of course, we look out into the world today and who is it that looks like they're prospering? Well, the way I see it, mostly it's the people who are rejecting God, where God plays no role in their life. They're looking as if they're doing very well, thank you very much. And I look at uh, Christians, and they seem to be struggling and finding it tough. And, and yet this verse, this biblical, these biblical glasses help us to see things truly and properly. That's why we need God's Word, isn't it? Because it'll tell us things we'll never see just with our eyes. If we're ever in danger of idolizing or envying the lives of the ungodly, we need to hear this truth of God's word, that if they remain as they are, their godless lives will be shown to be futile and worthless on the day of God's judgment. The wicked will not stand in the judgment. They are living doomed lives. Verse 5 tells us that God's judgment day casts a huge shadow over our lives, whether we want to recognize it or not. This is the reality. Those who remain godless throughout their life, it doesn't matter how brilliantly they have been judged by their peers, whether they have statues or hospitals named after them, whatever. It is only the judgment of the final day that really counts. And there will only be one important criteria on God's judgment day, and it's not how much money you've got, how many possessions you've had, how many academic qualifications you've, you've acquired. It is whether you are righteous or not. That's what verse 5 says, isn't it? Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. Are you right with God or are you not right with God? The wicked will not stand. There is no place in God's presence. There's no place amongst the righteous for the sinner. It is a doomed life. It is a damned life. Verse 6 spells out that there really are only two ways to live. The Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. You may have had a very tough year so far. Things may be looking very difficult for you, even as a believer, and you're struggling and you're wondering, is it worth it? Maybe you've been despised uh, by non-Christian friends or family. Maybe it's really tough. Maybe you're suffering. You're struggling to get by. And I want to say to you, if you're thinking of giving up, don't be fooled by the limited perspective of your own experience. Listen to God's word today. The Lord is watching over you. The word... uh, Watching is the word knows. The Lord knows you. And it's not just, oh, yes, you know, facts that you know. It's God's active love, his care, his, his watching over your life. Do you know that every step that you've walked in that painful experience that you're going through, every dark moment where you've thought you're all on your own, the Lord has been watching you, loving you. Sustaining you, keeping you. What a blessing to know the Lord will keep us through every trouble and trauma and trial of our lives and watch us safe home to glory until we're in the assembly of those who are right with God, the righteous. Have you ever envied the wicked? Don't. 
It's stupid to envy the wicked. They're living futile, doomed lives. So there's a choice at the end of this psalm, isn't there? Are you living the happy life of the righteous, marked by delight in the Bible, or the doomed life of the wicked? It's a sharp choice. There's no third option. Are you wicked or righteous? Are you ungodly or godly? Are you someone who's been pushing God away, or is he at the center of your life? Now, I have to say, everyone feels uncomfortable with that question. And part of the discomfort comes because of this. None of us are naturally righteous. None of us fit in that category. We weren't born that way. Uh, Even in this past week, you're aware of all the ways that you have not been righteous. You'll be aware, perhaps, especially so as a believer, that you have sinned. Who is this happy, blessed one that the psalm is speaking about? Well, ultimately, I want to suggest you there's only been one. The one who never walked in the counsel of the wicked or stood in the way of sinners or sat in the seat of mockers. It was none of the great ones of the Old Testament that fit that category, ultimately. There's been nobody in this room. It's about Jesus, isn't it? He's described as the, uh, uh, by those who knew him on earth as the righteous one. He alone was the absolutely sinless one. He's the one who came to save us uh, from God's judgment by dying on a cross, bearing the punishment that we deserve. He offers to take our sin and give us his righteousness. He offers to, to move us from the box of the damned to the life of the blessed, from the wicked to those made righteous by faith in his Son. It's extraordinary. It's amazing. If you are wicked, a sinner, the offer is freely there for you to come to Christ this day. He is more than sufficient to pay the price for all of your sins if you'll come and submit to him and ask him, forgive me, cleanse me, make me yours. You could do that tonight. No longer to live under the title cursed, perishing, but to live under the title of blessed, alive, alive to God. And my Christian friends, what? Extraordinary blessings are ours to know God. Take time this week to review the blessings laid out in this psalm. The blessing of delight. We can know delight in our life. Delight in knowing God. The blessing of fruitfulness, productiveness. Our lives can bear great fruit for God the promise of relationship with God, that he knows us, that he loves us, that he watches over us. My friends, do you want to grow in this blessed life? Here it is. And by God's grace, my ministry here will be about pointing you to God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit through this word. We're going to read scripture together. Uh, I'm going to have a go at preaching at it and... and, uh, Hopefully in a few years I might even be half decent at it if you pray. And we're going to study it midweek as a church. And, and my friends, as, as God ignites 
and grows our affection towards him. We're going to be speaking about it with each other. In fact, you're not going to need the pastor to do all the visitation because, to be honest, any one of you will be able to go and, and share what, what you've read in God's word and encourage and pray with each other because we're going to minister to each other with God's word. That's what I trust by God's grace. We're going to do together and God will get the glory. What a privilege to stand in the congregation of the righteous. Why were you saved? To stand in the congregation of the righteous, have the the opportunity and privilege of worshipping God. This is why we're going to gather. To stand in the congregation of the righteous, praising and worshipping this great and glorious God. And we are going to um, know more of, of this amazing creator together. We're going to grow in greater love for him, grow in obedience to him. We're going to have tremendous times together because we have a tremendous God. Are you going to come with that expectancy? Are you going to come with that prayer? Are you going to come to your word each day? Let's seek God's grace to do that. Let's pray. How glorious of Father to call you Father. Thank you for showering us with blessing, mercy, and love. We thank you for your perfect Son, our Lord and Savior. Oh, please be gracious to those who are still in that unhappy state of being under your wrath. Draw them to yourself even this night that they may know the joy of a relationship with you. Lord, stir in each one of our hearts fresh affections for yourself, fresh hunger for your word, that we may grow as fruitful Christians, that we may grow as a fruitful church. To your praise and glory we ask it. In Christ's precious name. Amen.